Every one of us here this morning is either growing stronger in Christ or growing weaker in Christ. There's like no middle ground. We're either trusting Christ more or we're trusting Christ less. Our love for God is either growing or it is declining. No one stays the same. The reason I say that is because of the reality of of sin, which the Bible teaches about. Even though we've been saved through trusting Jesus Christ, there is still remaining sin in us, and there's sin in the world around us, and sin doesn't just be passive. Sin is working to try to suck others into its grip. And I, I picture it like it's like a river, big old river in, 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 uh, in United States, Mississippi River, or what's the river that's going towards the Niagara Falls? I forget the name of it. It's up in, up in Canada. But anyway, think of a big river which is flowing towards a very dangerous fall, waterfalls. This is the river of sin, and, and we're all in it because of our sinfulness. We've been saved, but we're still in this river. We're still in the world. Now think about what happens in a river if you're in the middle of the river and you're, you're just, you're just like, like treading water. You're not going to stay in the same place, will you? You'll be swept down the river towards those dangerous waterfalls, right? If you're just sitting there treading water, you're not going to stay in the same place. You're going to be swept towards the waterfalls. The only way you avoid the waterfalls is if you swim against the currents. If you move ahead, paddling ahead, moving ahead. That, that's true of our Christian lives. If we are just cruising, if we're just kind of treading water, if we're just kind of taking it easy, if we're getting lethargic or complacent, we will not stay in the same place. We will be drawn away from Christ by the pressure of sin around us, by the sin within our own hearts, by that river of sin which is leading us towards that waterfall. Now the reason I say that is because that truth is powerfully and and soberly illustrated in today's passage in the book of, of Genesis. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 42, verse 49, and we'll go through chapter 43. We're studying the life of Joseph this summer. Let me give you a recap of the book of Genesis so far, and then I'll bring it up to Joseph's life. The beginning chapters of Genesis, all of humanity has sinned. Sin is spreading throughout the world, and every human being faces the curse of eternal punishment from God. Tragic beginning to the book of Genesis. But God, in great love and great mercy and great compassion, this is amazing, he promises in the beginning chapters of Genesis that he's going to send a Messiah, the Savior. This Messiah, this Savior, is going to be born from the people of Israel. And he is going to save people from God's curse of eternal punishment and bring people into the blessing of knowing God, loving God, worshiping God. That's going to happen to people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. That's the promise in the book of Genesis. Now, who fulfills that promise of the, the Messiah and the Savior? It's Jesus Christ. Beautiful. From all the way back, the first book of the Bible, making this promise. And then we see through the rest of the Bible that promise is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. Jesus is fully God, and he took on human nature, took on a human body so that he could suffer on the cross to pay for the sins of all who will trust him. And so the moment you put your trust in Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, you move from being under God's curse to being under God's blessing. 
You're forgiven by God. His power starts to change you. His love fills you. This is what Jesus Christ is all about. So that promise of the Messiah is right there at the beginning of Genesis. And so the book of Genesis is all about God repeating this promise of the Messiah and God protecting and securing this promise of the Messiah. And that's what goes on through the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph. So what's happened in the life of Joseph? What have we seen so far? Remember, Joseph had two dreams at the very beginning where his brothers, his 10 older brothers, and all of his family were bowing down to him. And Joseph's brothers were so furious about that, so angry, so jealous, that they decided to kill him. And then they thought, better, no, wait, why kill him? We can make some money off of him. So they sold him into slavery in Egypt. And he was sold into Egypt, became part of Potiphar's household. But now this is all according to God's plan, as we will see. So Joseph is there in Potiphar's house, and while he's there, he is unjustly accused of trying to assault Potiphar's wife. He's thrown into prison. But again, this is all according to God's plan. Because while in prison, Pharaoh's baker and cupbearer are also thrown into prison, they each have a, a different dream from each other. They each have dreams. And Joseph, God gives Joseph the ability to interpret those dreams. And it happens exactly as Joseph interpreted. Tragically for the baker, in three days he was killed by Pharaoh. But better news for the cupbearer, in three days he was restored to his original position as Pharaoh's cupbearer. Next, Pharaoh has two very troubling dreams and none of his wise men can interpret them. And then the cupbearer thinks, wait a minute. He says to Pharaoh, I know someone who interprets dreams. I met a guy in prison. I had a dream. He interpreted it. It turned out exactly the way that he said. So Pharaoh summons Joseph from prison to come before him. So imagine you're, you're Joseph. You woke up in prison that morning, and now you're being summoned to stand before Pharaoh over all of Egypt. And Pharaoh tells Joseph the dreams that he had, and Joseph interprets them and says to Pharaoh, God is going to give you seven years of bountiful harvest, followed by seven years of severe famine. And then Joseph gives Pharaoh some counsel. I suggest that you put someone in charge of all of Egypt's food so that during the seven years of bountiful harvest, they can store the excess food, which you can then eat during the seven years of severe famine. Pharaoh thinks that's exactly right, and you are going to be the man, Joseph. So Joseph was promoted to being the number two person over all of Egypt, in charge of all of their food. Wherever he went, Egyptians were all bowing down before him. So again, remember, he woke up in prison, and he's going to sleep that night, the number two man over all of Egypt. But see, this is all according to God's plan because the people of Israel living north in Canaan were going to suffer severe famine and God wanted to make sure that they had the food they needed and so he took one of their people, Joseph, made him the number two man over Egypt so that they would all have, have all the food that they need. Isn't that amazing? Just, I just gotta say this. When you ever start to think, why is all this happening? Why is this going on? This can't be a good thing. Remember Joseph's story. He was in complete control over just the, the, just the chaos and the confusion and prison and the disappointment and God had it all planned out to bring out a beautiful result. 
So remember that, okay, church? When things start going wrong, you can't imagine why this is happening. God has a reason for everything you will see one day. Trust him. Now, where was I going? I got distracted there. Okay. Um, All right, so the people of Israel are, the famine has started. People of Israel are running out of food. And we saw last week that Jacob, Joseph's father, sent the ten brothers to Egypt to buy food. And so they come and they stand before Joseph, who, remember, they had sold into slavery. And they want to buy food from him. They have money that they've brought. They don't recognize Joseph. They think Joseph has died, which is what happens to Egyptian slaves. They don't recognize him, but Joseph recognizes them. And Joseph doesn't tell them who he is. Instead, he treats them harshly. He accuses them of being spies. And he does some other things that are puzzling, and it seems that his purpose in this is to bring them to be convicted for their sin so that they will repent and be restored to God. And we see that happening through this story. So he accuses them of being spies. They tell him, we're not spies. We're honest people. We have one father. We have a younger brother at home. And Joseph says, okay, prove it to me. I'm going to keep one of you here in custody. The rest of you go back. And when you come back, bring that younger brother. And then I'll know that you're not spies. So he gives them, Pharaoh gives them food, or Joseph gives them food. Uh, they give him Oh, he also sneaks their money back in each of their bags, the money they had brought to buy the food. So he gives them food, sneaks the money in their bags, sends them back. And then that brings us to today's passage. Now, what I want to focus on, what I think Moses is focusing on in this passage today is what's happening spiritually in the lives of Jacob over these years and in the lives of Joseph's brothers. And so to set the stage for what we're going to see in this passage Let's start by asking, what have we learned so far about Jacob and about his sons? So what have we learned about his sons so far? We've learned at least two things. One is they were so jealous of Joseph that they sold him into slavery. And can you imagine selling your brother into lifelong slavery? These are wicked men. And then secondly, a whole chapter is given to showing us Judah's sin. He's one of these brothers. And Judah abandoned his family, abandoned the people of God, married a Canaanite woman who was not faithful to God, an ungodly woman. Judah lied to his daughter-in-law, and then Judah slept with a woman he thought was a temple prostitute, one of the prostitutes serving in these idolatrous temples. So this is, this is an ugly chapter, chapter 38. So this is what we see of Joseph's brothers so far. These are a wicked bunch of guys, okay? But last week we saw that they are starting to be convicted for their sin because of the way Joseph was was dealing with them. That's Joseph's brothers, Jacob's sons. How about Jacob? What have we seen about Jacob? Seven chapters earlier, in Genesis 35, verse 3, we see Jacob talking to his family. And listen to what he says. He says, Then let us arise... And go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Here Jacob is leading his family towards worship. 
I mean, to build an altar, that shows that Jacob's a man who worshipped God. He says, God has answered me in all of my distresses, which shows that Jacob prayed whenever he faced any kind of distress. Every time Jacob faced distress, he prayed and God answered him. So he, he worshipped, he prayed, and he says, God has been with me wherever I've gone, which means that Jacob had a sweet sense of fellowship, communion with God. So Jacob was a worshiper, Jacob was a prayer, Jacob was a man who loved and walked with God. So Joseph's brother is very different, sinful and far from God. Jacob was faithful and close to God. And in today's passage, Moses is going to focus on spiritual changes that are taking place in Jacob and in the brothers. Verses 29 through 38 focus on Jacob. So let's ask, how does Jacob respond when his sons return home from Egypt with the food? How does Jacob respond? Chapter 42, verse 29. When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man, talking about Joseph here, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we are honest men. We have never been spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, speaking of Joseph, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan, Benjamin. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men and I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, so here's the brothers, they're all there with Jacob. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in the sack in his sack. And when they and their father, notice how Moses emphasizes this, when they and their father Jacob saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. They're, they're going to be accused of, of stealing, of theft, thievery. And Jacob, their father, said to them, now listen to this, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. That's not true, right? And Simeon is no more. That's not true. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. So Jacob's just kind of got this victim thing, got this self-focused thing going on here. Then verse 37. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him, Benjamin, back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he, Jacob, said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he's the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. That means I would die in sorrow. That's what's described there. So in this section, Moses is focusing us on Jacob. And what do we see about Jacob here? Now remember, seven chapters earlier, Jacob was a man who worshipped God. He prayed about every distress he faced. He felt he experienced sweet communion, fellowship with God. But here we see none of that. 
No worship, no prayer, no evidence of fellowship with God. Instead, Jacob has become fearful, and he is so fearful that he is not going to send the sons back to Egypt to save Simeon because he doesn't want to risk Benjamin. He's willing to have Simeon die in prison in Egypt for the sake of trying to protect Benjamin. So what has happened to Jacob, which moved him from being a worshiper, a prayer, a a man who loved spending time with God, to now we see him fearful, nothing of prayer, nothing of worship. What happened? Between these seven chapters, there's no time when Jacob said, I'm going to stop following God. I'm going to turn away from God. I don't believe this stuff anymore. You see, none of that. So what happened? I think what happened is that he simply started coasting spiritually. He was in the river of sin, and he stopped swimming upstream. He stopped worshiping. He's, he's, he was used to worship, used to pray, used to have fellowship with God, and then he just thought, I'm just going to sit here in this inner tube, right, in the river. Now, if you're in an inner tube in the river, what happens to you? You float downstream. So you can't just think you're going to coast and stay the same, and Jacob became more and more and more distant from God. We don't see any evidence of worship, see no evidence of prayer here. That's what's happening to Jacob. Jacob is moving from closeness to God to distance to God, trusting God to unbelief, confidence in God to fear. We see this change happening in Jacob's life. Now, in in this next section, he does send the 10 brothers back with Benjamin. But why? Is this out of confidence in God or some other reason? Let's ask, why does Jacob end up allowing his sons to return to Egypt with Benjamin? Notice what Moses emphasizes starting in chapter 43, verse 1. Now, the famine was severe in the land. There's your first clue. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, there's your second clue, Their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, now remember remember who Judah was? All of chapter 38 devoted to describing his horrifying sin. Judah, remember we saw last week's passage, Judah. Conviction, drawing close to God, God's changing him. Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. So if you, father, We'll send our brother with us. We will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel, Jacob, the father, said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father said to them, 
If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags, carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you, carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. And now here we do hear something about God from Jacob's mouth. He says, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Okay, now, why does Jacob send the ten brothers back? What's the motivation? Well, verses 1 and 2, it's because the famine was severe and they'd eaten all the food they'd bought from Egypt. Notice the beginning of verse 11. Jacob says, if it must be so, which shows that he was simply choosing between the, the best of two terrible options. Like, okay, if we got to do it, we got to do it. It's not like God's calling, God's going to take care of us, God's going to provide. Nothing of God there, but there is something of God in verse 14. But as you look at verse 14, he's not praying, he's not talking to God. He's simply saying, I, ho I hope God helps you. It's not a lot of love for the Lord, not a lot of passion for the Lord, not personal worship dependence on the Lord. It's not like the worship and prayer and closeness with God that he used to have. So see, sin is continuing to take Jacob downstream. He's floating spiritually. He's lukewarm. He's complacent. And sin is continuing to carry Jacob downstream. But did you notice Judah in this passage? Remember, chapter 38, terribly wicked man. But in verse 9, it's Judah who offers to take full responsibility for Benjamin. Judah had abandoned God's people in chapter 38, had walked away from God's people. Now he's willing to risk everything in order to go get food to feed God's people. Judah has been transformed here. God has changed his heart. He is swimming against the stream. He's swimming upstream. Now, Jacob does let his sons return to Egypt. And what ends up happening? It's an amazing end of this section. God works in six wonderful ways here in these next verses. Verses 15 to 34. Let me just go through them one at a time. First of all, I just wrote down, the brothers are invited to lunch by Joseph or with Joseph. So look at verses 15 and 17. So the men took this present, the almonds and the honey and the pistachio nuts. The men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Remember, they don't recognize Joseph. Joseph recognizes them. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man, the steward, did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. So that's good news, right? They show up and they're invited to lunch with Joseph or with Pharaoh's number two man. And that's very encouraging. Then second, they, they hear this amazing news that it was God who had returned their money to them, who'd put the money in the sack. So look at verses 18 through 23. The men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, it's because of the money. 
which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us and make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they, they think we've stolen the money. We're going to come and get beaten up as we go. That's why Joseph is having us to his house. Verse 19, so they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house. Let's, let's talk to the steward ahead of time. And they said, verse 20, Oh, my Lord, we have came down the first time to buy food. And then after they'd left, we came to the lodging place on our way home. We opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we've brought it again with us. We didn't steal it. We're bringing this back. And we've brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. Now listen to what the steward says. This is amazing. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. I think what's going on here is that Joseph has told the steward what to say to the brothers if they fess up that they had money in their, in their sacks. What do you say to them? And it is true, the steward had received their money. When they arrived in Egypt the first time, they gave the steward, here's the money, we want to buy food. So they all gave the steward their money. The steward had received their money, and it's true that God had given that money back to them because he did that through Joseph, through the steward. So God had led Joseph to have the steward return that money secretly into each of their sacks. This is amazing. So I, I think Joseph tells the steward, tell this to my brothers, because Joseph wants to give the brothers a beautiful picture of God's generosity, of God's love, of God's goodness. Remember, one of their big problems was jealousy. And just, just a side note, if you struggle with jealousy, when I struggle with jealousy, I'm not seeing God's goodness big enough at all. I'm thinking, that person's got that. I need that. Well, I don't need that. I have God. I have God as my Father. I have Jesus as my Savior. He's my all-satisfying treasure. I don't need that. I have God. But when I'm jealous thinking I need that, I have forgotten about God. Isn't that true? Don't you see that in your heart? When you're jealous of what somebody else has, somebody else has you have forgotten about God, about Jesus, about all that you have in Christ. And Joseph here wants to remind his brothers, look at who your God is. He's leading me to do this. God will take care of everything you need. You never need to be jealous of anyone ever again. Third, Simeon is freed. Remember, he's the one who was kept back in custody when they went back home. Simeon is freed and all their needs are met. Verse 23, halfway through the end of verse 23, then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and they had washed their feet and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon for they heard that they should eat bread there. Then fourth, Joseph sees his younger brother, Benjamin. I mean, again, he saw him at a distance earlier, but now he, now he sees him and look at what happens. Verse 26, when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? 
They said, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he, Joseph, lifted up his eyes and saw his brother, Benjamin, his mother's son. Remember, Joseph and Benjamin were born to Rachel, who was Jacob's favorite. Remember? And they were, so Joseph and Benjamin were, both had the same mother. They were very close. So he saw his mother, his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. This is just a beautiful picture of God's goodness to Joseph. Years of being away from his family, from being away from Benjamin. Now, he, he hasn't told Benjamin who he is yet, but he's, he sees him. His heart, oh, and he has to go, go off and, and weep on his own. Fifth, then, Joseph seats the brothers in their birth order. Verse 31, then he, Joseph, washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, before Joseph, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Now, the most natural way to understand that amazement is that they're looking saying, how did Joseph know our exact birth order? He's got us lined up here exactly in the order that we were born. That's pretty impressive. How did he know and why does he do that? I think that's the, the next point, sixth point. Benjamin receives five times as much food, even though he's the youngest in the, amongst the brothers, and yet the brothers are not jealous, but eat and drink merrily. Verse 34, portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. I mean, imagine, okay? You've got this plate of food, and like Benjamin's got this like mountain of food in front of him, five times as much. This is, why is this going on here? Five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. Now think about this. Years ago, when Joseph's ten brothers saw favoritism being given towards Joseph, they were enraged with jealousy and sold him into slavery. But now, when Benjamin gets five times as much food, obvious favoritism shown towards Benjamin, there's no jealousy. They're eating and drinking merrily. Huge changes happened from the brothers earlier to the, what's happening with the brothers now. God is changing their hearts. He's using what Joseph is doing to change their hearts. So see, even though Joseph's brothers started off terribly sinful, now they are, they are like growing spiritually. And even though Jacob started off strong, he's now drifting and declining spiritually. So as we look at this overall passage, as I pray, Lord, so what do you want for Grace Church this morning? What do you want to teach us from this passage? I think there's two truths. 
that are crucial that we learn from this passage. The first is that Jacob shows us how complacency, coasting, taking it easy spiritually can dull us. That's what Jacob, Jacob's life wants to, sh- God wants to show us from Jacob's life here. Again, remember, back in Genesis 35, Jacob was a worshiper, he was a prayer, and he was a man who fellowshiped with God. But seven chapters later, chapters 42 and 43, we see nothing of that. No worship, no prayer to God, no evidence of fellowship with God. So what happened to Jacob? Well, Jacob, just like you and me, he's in this river of sin, and there was no obvious choice where he said, I'm going to stop worshiping, I'm going to stop praying. He just kind of started getting lethargic. He just started getting lukewarm. He just started getting complacent. And again, if you just said, I'm just going to sit in this inner tube in the river, you're not going to stay where you are. The river will take you with it. So if you're just just going to say, I'm just going to kind of cruise spiritually for a while, you will not just cruise spiritually. The river of sin will take you with it. And that's what happened with Joseph here. Jacob here. Now, that may be happening to you. This may be what's happening with you. As you look back to your past spiritual life, and if you're honest, you may see that I, I, just, I, I had so much more love for Christ back then. My worship was so much more earnest. I was so much more devoted to reading the scriptures, to building up my brothers and sisters in faith. I was passionate about sharing my testimony, about pursuing evangelism. I was, I was so much more fervent back then. And, and it's not like you made any choice, I'm, I'm going to stop following Jesus. You just took your foot off the throttle a little bit. You just, I'm going to sit in the inner tube. I'm going to just be a little bit more at ease here. And nothing will happen because, see, when you're, when you're in the inner tube in the river, don't you feel peaceful? You're just floating, right? But you, if you listen, can, can you hear the falls? They're getting closer. See how that works? And see, that, that may be what's happened with, with you. But here's the good news. In the later chapters, we're going to see God pursuing Jacob and changing Jacob. God can do that. And the reason God has you here this morning to hear this message is because God's pursuing you. And he has you here this morning to hear this message. If you look at your life and say, I used to be far more devoted to Christ, far more passionate about him, far more involved in fellowship, and what's happened to me, I I guess I'm just maturing now, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Wrong. That's not what it is. You've been in the inner tube, coasting, and sin is sweeping you along the river towards the falls. That's what's happened. That's what's taken place. And the good news is that God has you here this morning because he loves you, because he wanted you to hear this, and because he will help you and meet you through Jesus. So if you will turn to Jesus Christ and say, forgive me, I've I've, I've been complacent, I've been dull, I've been lukewarm, forgive me, I've drifted, I've drifted, I didn't intend to, but look at where I am right now, what has happened to me, help me. Jesus will be running toward you. Remember like the prodigal son story, the father's running towards the, the prodigal son, because he loves him and he will come toward you and give you everything you need. He will forgive you completely. He will start to change you. 
you will see those passions and that love and that joy start to rise up again and he will fill you with the joy that only he can give. He will do that for you. So that's my, my, my urging to you. If, if you look at your life and say, something has happened from a few years ago, a few months ago, I've drifted, I'm not feeling it like I used to, I'm farther from God, understand what's happened is you have stopped swimming against the current. Now, I just got to say one more thing about this. The picture of swimming against the current sounds kind of exhausting, doesn't it? Any, any swimmers out there? No. Okay, well, all right. Okay, got a swimmer. Tavo, thank you. Help me out here now. So I, I, used, to, I used to swim, and, um, and for our, our, the swim team workouts, every once in a while, we would, we, we would bring swim fins and put swim fins on, I'm not sure why, but anyway, we did that as part of the workout. Did you do that too? Okay. And then you swim fast, don't you, with swim fins? Okay, so, so here's the deal. It's not just you going against this current because God will give you some big old powerful swim fins, the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? And it's like, oh, and so it's work. It's not like you just can sit in the inner tube. It is work, but oh, man, it's work, and it's working. It's working. We're making progress against the, does that make any sense? Okay, bear with me. I hope that makes some sense. All right, so, but that's the word for those of you who look at your life and you say, I've been drifting, I've been coasting, I've been lethargic, I've been dull. What's happened to me? Make no excuses this morning. Say, I've drifted. I've sinned. I've stopped seeking. Jesus, I'm back. Help me. Do that. Second lesson. This is so encouraging. Joseph's brothers show us how powerfully God can change us. That's the picture of Joseph's brothers here, how, how Jesus can change us. Now, I want to focus on Jesus because even though this is Old Testament, Old Testament before Jesus came, New Testament after Jesus came, every spiritual benefit that comes to us, Old Testament or New Testament time period, comes through what Jesus did on the cross. It's all through Jesus. I want to focus on Jesus here. Joseph's brothers show how Jesus can change us. Again, remember Joseph's brothers before. Can you imagine selling your brother into slavery? That's what they all decided to do to him. And then can you imagine like being like Judah, abandoning your family, lying about your daughter-in-law, sleeping with the temple, somebody you think is a temple prostitute? So what's happening now? Jesus' power is changing them. Last week, we saw them convicted of their sin. They said, in truth, we are guilty. God's changing them. He's convicting them of their sin. Here, this passage, we see Judah willing to risk everything to go and get food for the people of God. And he's going to take responsibility for Benjamin. We see the brothers changing. They see favoritism shown towards Benjamin. And they, they don't care. They have God. God's given us all our money back. If that's how great God is, if that's who God's going to be to us the rest of our life, caring for us, providing for us, helping us, I don't need to be jealous of anybody. God is changing them. And the point I want to make is God will change you too. He will forgive you through Jesus, Jesus dying on the cross to pay for that sin. See, no sin is too wicked for Jesus to forgive. And no sin is too powerful for Jesus to change. He will forgive you. He will change you. So don't think, well, this all sounds like wonderful news, but you don't realize what sin I'm dealing with here. It doesn't make any difference what sin you're dealing with. Jesus broke the power of that sin on the cross, 
And as you come to him and say, I trust you, forgive me, I trust you, change me, I trust you, fill me and satisfy me, he will. You'll be completely forgiven for all your sins, past, present, and future. His power will be poured out upon you and he will start to change you. You will feel that change starting this afternoon, maybe earlier, tonight, tomorrow. He will change you. And that area of sin that you have struggled with or that seems so oppressive or so impossible to be freed from, he will free you from it. He'll forgive you. He'll change you like he's changing Jacob's sons and he will fill you and satisfy you. If we're complacent, complacency can dull us, but Jesus' power can save us. So turn to Jesus in your heart right now. Trust him, confess to him, ask him to help you. He will. He will, Grace Church. He will. No more complacency here. No more dullness here spiritually. No more just sitting in the inner tube coasting. Put on the fins and let's go. Let's swim and he will empower us and bless us and meet us. Let's stand together. Father, I pray that you would pour out conviction upon us right now as we, as we need it to the extent that we need it. I pray, Lord, that any sense in which any of us are coasting in some area, maybe it's just one area of our lives where we've been coasting, Oh, Lord, show us your glory. Show us your love. Show us your beauty. Show us the joy we will have as we're swimming against the current of, swim, of, of sin by your power with those Holy Spirit fins that you will give to us. God, I pray that you'd convict us of, of any area in our lives now where we are complacent, where we've been coasting. And Lord, show us the cross. Show us the forgiveness that Jesus purchased. Show us the, the conquering of sin's power that Jesus accomplished on the cross. And I pray that you would turn hearts right now to trust Jesus Christ and that you would pour out forgiveness, you'd pour out heart-changing power, and you'd pour out joy and love and peace. So we say you are great. We worship you. We trust you. Come and work in your people now, I pray. In Jesus' name.